Acts of the Apostles, chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. You can find this on page 785 if you're using one of the Bibles we provided in the chair pockets or at the end of the aisles. Again, Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and, a lamb, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe this gen- his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this, about himself or about someone else. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the, along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, and he baptized him. And when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is God's word. We are holding a baptism service on Sunday, November 9th. Um, and just like last time when we held a baptism for service, the first part took place here, and then we're going to caravan over just about five minutes to Governor's Beach for some uh, worship through song, as well as the actual baptism of folks. So please do contact me or approach me uh, if you are interested in getting baptized or just even have more questions about it. I'm incredibly, incredibly stoked this morning to talk to you guys about baptism maybe answer a few questions, certainly to provide some clarity to what is sometimes a confusing rite or ordinance. You know, this passage does in miraculously with sort of this everyman Jew and African royalty getting into the waters of baptism together. Two very unlikely people who come together because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One man baptizing another but the passage gets started, kicks things off with an angel. And not an angel like your Aunt Margaret's an angel for knitting together your child's baby blanket. All right, Not that kind of angel, nor the kind of angel that rescues abandoned kittens. Not that kind of angel, but actually an actual heavenly being created by God to sing his praises and do his bidding. That kind of angel. The Bible says that angels are among us. However, they would be easy to miss. After all, that is actually part of their uh, job description. A dear, dear friend of my sister, 
uh, endure nothing short of a traumatic, just hellish season of life recently. Years of built-up deceit towards her, behind-the-scenes betrayal, threats, blame, just unnecessary tragedy and loss in her life. She was at a restaurant one night celebrating with loved ones the, the kind of sweet something that she would no longer now experience in her life. So she went into sort of a fancy bathroom, passed the attendant in that bathroom, and she just began to cry, knowing she would never get to experience what she was seeing in this dear couple she was celebrating with. Her sister knew what was going on. She followed her to the restroom, you know, offered her some hugs and some comfort. And at this point, the attendant in the bathroom gets a phone call. And just as they're both about to leave the washroom, the attendant tells the person on the phone, uh, hey, just hold on one second. She, the attendant then turns to the suffering woman and says, I'm supposed to tell you that you're supposed to give that to Jesus. What you are hurting from, hand over to him. Only he can handle what you're enduring. It was exactly what my sister's friend needed to hear. That she didn't have time because of a busy life to hear it. She had multiple kids. Maybe you could blame her. She wasn't sensitive enough to the Holy Spirit. But here is a woman who told her exactly what she needed to hear. Good news. And at the end of the evening, she asked the manager if the bathroom attendant was still working. And the manager said to her, ma'am, we don't have a bathroom attendant. We haven't had one in all the years I've worked here. Angel? She thought so, and so do I. So do I. We learn throughout the Bible that God's angels are ministers and messengers. They minister good news practically, and they give good news. And they also don't stick around very long. There are two types of angels we see in Scripture. I'd love to give you different examples, but no time for that. We have obedient angels who serve God. We have disobedient fallen angels, also known as demons. Fallen angels are always loud. They draw attention to themselves. So we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to start our final stretch run through Mark next Sunday. You should have got one of these lovely little flyers at the door. Be praying for us as we preach. And, And in Mark, when demons appear, they're loud, they're brash, and they cause like a big spectacle. They're like a, a Hollywood actor in a hotel room, all right? They just go crazy, like Johnny Depp style, okay? <laughs> and in Mark 1, we see this. Jesus is teaching with authority. And all of a sudden, there's a commotion, and he looks out there, and this demon's crying out. What have you to do with us, son of man? Another time, demons actually request that Jesus send them into pigs, creating this spectacle as all of them trounce into this pond and causing a commotion among the people who relied on them for income. Obedient angels never try to cause a commotion. They'll try to draw attention to themselves. Angels literally mean, in both the Greek and Hebrew, messengers. Hebrews uh, 1.14 says that obedient angels are ministering spirits. We hear of them again at the end of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 13.2, you may be familiar with this passage or this verse. Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. For some who have done this have entertained angels without even knowing it. 
Think back to your life, the people you've had in your home, the people you've welcomed into your life at a coffee shop. It is possible. But here's the thing. Typical angel, without realizing it, That's typical angel. They don't want you to pay too much attention to them because their purpose is to put the spotlight on Jesus. Not to draw attention to themselves like fallen angels, but put the spotlight on Jesus. Notice in our passage, the angel of the Lord gives a message to Philip that will draw just one person's attention to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And then poof, like he throws down the smoke, poof. He's gone. Typical angel. And it's important because some of us wish to add angels to their sort of spiritual diet. Their pantheon even of worship. You may have even talked before in your life about a personal angel. Or being touched by an angel. Or man, I love angels. But angels do not want you to love them like that. The only angels who want that kind of attention are fallen angels. Obedient angels want you to love Jesus. They want to draw your attention to Jesus. They, so they show up in washrooms to, put, to spotlight good news from Jesus. And then you never see them again. And it's interesting because after we see an angel in this passage, we see God, the Holy Spirit, show up. And he has a very similar job description, though not exactly, but similar to an angel in that Holy Spirit's main purpose is to spotlight the person and work of Jesus. We see this in John chapter 16, if you want to read that later. In our passage, the Spirit says to Philip, as he's come down to this remote desert, almost parking lot, go over and join that chariot. Why? So that I can join the person in it to Jesus. So we have obedient angels. We have God the Holy Spirit shining a spotlight on the person and work of Jesus. What about you? What about you? If, if you've come to trust and love Jesus through his good news, rescue plan, how might you, like angels, like the Holy Spirit, spotlight the person and work of Jesus? What does the Bible say ought to be our first and most compelling response to spotlight the work he's done in our lives to others? To put the spotlight. People see, this is what he has done for me. So others we love can see it baptism, the first and most compelling response to spotlight the work of Jesus in your life. Water baptism. It demonstrates outwardly and visually what Jesus has done for us inwardly and actually. And I want us to appreciate the gift that baptism is. I hope we do in an age of visual learning. How many of you would classify yourselves as visual learners? You love to see something on display to make it more vivid to you. We have a a prayer vigil upcoming to pray for suffering saints like Kevin testified to up here, including the persecuted church. And he quoted to you, as could I, many many statistics about the persecuted church and what they're enduring in their lives. And that's powerful. But we also asked every community group in the church to watch something called Leanna's Prayer. Leanna's Prayer is a visual, dramatic reenactment through video about a Syrian family's decision to refuse asylum when war started in Syria and instead stay behind to suffer persecution, hardship, bad men coming into their home so they could be a witness to others about the love of Jesus. But to watch this video 
put our community group to tears. Baptism, likewise, spotlights Jesus through this compelling visual reenactment of his real work in our lives. His real work in our lives. In fact, we'll learn three things about baptism from this passage. And the first one is just that. That baptism presents a compelling visual of a clear gospel. Compelling visual of a clear gospel. Okay? So we have a man here in this story journeying back to his home. He's taken along some reading material for the journey. And he takes a pit stop for his chariot. And he's reading the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, chapter 53. And he's curious while reading this chapter from the prophet. Who's behind this injustice? Like, who, who, who is this person who's endured such injustice? Just as many of us kind of stop and pause at a news story or just a story someone's telling us about an injustice endured. We stop, don't we? We think, man, what a shame. Or we maybe even take action. We pray. We call up a hotline to help someone. It's caught his attention as well. In verse 35, Philip, we see, takes advantage of it to share the good news with this man. Verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told this man the good news about Jesus. As we explored in some depth last week, the good news about Jesus is this. God is perfect and we are not. In fact, we spend most of our lives living our own way and not God's. And in doing so, we've done damage to our relationship with him. Irreparable damage such that somebody has to pay because God is a just God. Thankfully, Jesus earned the credit to pay the Father by living a perfect life, the perfect life we could not. And so he paid the debt that we could not, so we would never have to. And we're told that this good news can become good for us simply by trusting our lives to this God-man, Jesus. Trusting that he is God not only of the universe, but of our lives. And trusting he can forever forgive that big, no, I want to live life my own way in our hearts. That's how the good news becomes good for us. As any of us would, we can tell from the text here that the Ethiopian man takes some time between Philip explaining him the good news and the moment he sees water and says, ooh, baptism. I would like to think that he would like all of us contemplate this good news, and what it means for his life. To trust his life to such a God-man would require that he no longer trust in doing enough good things to please God. He would no longer trust his job performance or his boss's opinion about him. He would no longer trust his money to make him happy. He was a wealthy man. This scroll was worth approximately $20,000 today. Instead, he'd have to put to death all those things he trusted. To put to death old identities, old ways of defining himself, to bury those old trusts in his life. But out of the ashes of the old would rise this new life as a child of the living God, now and forever. That's the decision he's got to contemplate as he's riding along, right, in his chariot. As all of us have had to contemplate at some point in our lives, we've heard this good news. Baptism demonstrates the work that happens in and leading up to the decision to say yes to Jesus. That's what baptism represents visually. So we see this in the passage, right? The Ethiopian eunuch goes down into the water, verse 38. He goes down into the water, which represents the decision as you go underneath the water to put to death 
the old ways of defining yourself, the old trusts buried forever. The water itself represents the effective and forever forgiveness of Jesus. You've tried to wash yourself to get out that stain of rebellion to make yourself right with God, but there's something you know in your conscience. Is it enough? Am I right with him yet? He's still perfect. I'm still not. And you try and you try. As the prophet Jeremiah says, you can wash yourself with soda. You can use all the soap you want, but the stain of your guilt is still before God until Jesus comes. And finally, they come out of the water, verse 39. It's a movement you see here that represents God has raised you to new life. So you have this burial, this cleansing, and this raising to new life, which, which is the gospel message. Jesus has died in your place to forever forgive you. He was buried to show that he was dead. And he's raised a new life that we might follow him in heaven and be with him forever. Awesome. You present to the church in baptism the church who needs to be constantly reminded about the good news about Jesus. We need to hear that gospel message. And you present to an all-looking world who's in need of saving. A compelling visual of the clear gospel. And so the New Testament goes on to keep talking about that. Places like Romans 6, 3-5. Colossians 2, 11 and 12. In baptism you have this burial, forgiveness, raising to new life. Same visual. So many times people just get baptized as an add-on. Like this is just kind of icing on the cake. No one explains to them what it means. It's significance. It's power. Depending on whether you uh, wear or don't wear green on March 17th, may depend on whether you like St. Patrick. All right? Because either you get pinched or you're the pincher. So people either are like very annoyed by you, like, oh, there's that bubbly woman going around the office pinching people. All right? You're not wearing your green socks. But this guy, he's worthy to be liked, let me tell you. He, he goes from the safety of England back to Ireland where he was once kidnapped. He goes back there to spread the good news about Jesus. And the story goes that as he was baptizing King Angus back in the 5th century, during this baptism, Patrick leaned on his staff. That's probably where we get the leprechaun and the staff thing. Patrick leans on his staff, and the pointy part of the staff actually punctures the king's foot. All right, the king, poof. And Patrick doesn't recognize it at first, but looks down, and he sees blood everywhere. And immediately he goes, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I can't believe this is happening. And the king says, oh yeah, don't worry about it. I just thought that was part of the ritual. (laughs) Can he stabbed? (laughs) Which is kind of funny. And it's also kind of sad, right? Because it implies, it implies that Patrick may not have really explained to the king what baptism is, what's involved in it, and how that corresponds to what the work of Jesus has accomplished in his life. Death, cleansing, resurrection. And so often that's the case with baptism. It becomes like this add-on, this icing on the cake. I guess I'll get baptized now. No, 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 no. So you guys, salvation is like the marriage vows. Baptism is like the visible wedding ring to show everybody else, hey, I belong to someone else. Salvation is God's life-altering act in your history 
Baptism is the Broadway play based on a true story. Right? It's almost like at baptism, we should, we should, we should have that sort of insignia across every baptism we do based on a true story. That's what Jesus has accomplished in this person's life. A death, a cleansing, a resurrection forever. So baptism presents a compelling visual of the clear gospel. Secondly, baptism presents a compelling question. What prevents me from being baptized? The eunuch asks this of a church leader, and it's not the only time we hear such a question in the book of Acts. The apostle Peter's been sharing the good news about Jesus with a, with a batch of Gentiles who have no clue about who Jesus is. We pick it up in Acts 10.43 where Peter's preaching to them. He says, look, this is his big conclusion. Everyone who trusts in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Notice the simple gospel message clearly. Trust in Jesus, forgiveness forever. Acts 10.44-47. While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, fell on all who heard the word and believers from among the circumcised who'd come with Peter, they were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles, non-Jews. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues, that is, these foreign languages, and they were extolling or praising God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit through their trust in Jesus, just like we have? When you trust Jesus, God comes inside of you. God, the Holy Spirit. Notice that question again. Can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people? Again, same question. Can anything prevent me from getting baptized? And that's a compelling question for a few reasons, and it's important I explain why, in case you this morning are thinking about getting baptized or know someone who is. First of all, this question is compelling because it is the right question. Notice it's not... Okay, as a leadership team, let's get together. Should this person be baptized? It's the baptism candidate, the person who wants to get baptized, saying to the leader, should anything prevent me from getting baptized? It's not the candidate's responsibility to sort of prove themselves, bring the evidence into court, and then the the church leader sort of, hmm, what do I think here? Not like that. It's coming to church leadership saying, look, I've trusted my life to Christ. I want to get baptized. Here's my story. As church leaders, we're called to listen. And if, if there's ever a reason in their story from the fruit of their lives where baptism should be withheld, it's up to the leadership to explain clearly to them, here's why. And create this sort of wonderful teaching moment, this bonding moment between two people. But then so tenderly, Right? Second reason this question is compelling, what prevents me from getting baptized, is it encourages church leadership to get to know the candidate on a gospel level. Since baptism shows the gospel, we have to ask the candidate about the gospel. What's the gospel done in your life? Do you understand what it is? Do you understand what it's going to do for you forever? It gives us, in a way, pardon the expression, like almost an excuse to like, let's, let's use this to get to know the candidate better as a leader. Thirdly, it presses the leader to discern out and ask God for evidence of the Spirit's work in their lives. That's hard for a leader to do, by the way. But it sort of presses us to lean into the Holy Spirit and ask, where are you doing work in this person's life, which is good for the leader? Fourthly, sometimes the answer to the question, the right answer, what prevents me from being baptized, is you just need time. You just need time. 
Which begs the question from the entire testimony of the book of Acts. When people trust Jesus, they normally immediately get baptized afterwards, don't they? So you see people say they believed in Jesus and they were baptized. They repented and they believed. They were baptized. There's some version of that. So why is it that most churches, including ours, encourage a process of looking at your life, talking with the church leader, then getting baptized? It's a fair question, and honestly, it's one that has been unsettling for me. I've had a look at it. Like, we see this here in Acts. Why don't we do this today? Well, I think we'd be helped by looking at a few instances we've already touched on. Places like Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10. All right, so first of all, Acts 2, I'm just going to describe it. The first ever public proclamation of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And we see clear evidence of the person's belief and the Spirit's work in their life, which is speaking and understanding the good news about Jesus in different languages called tongues. So all these people understand, they're like, whoa, these people are speaking my language, this person's speaking my language, and I understand it. This is something miraculous going on here. Acts chapter 8. Philip says, notice in our passage, next to nothing about the gospel. Uh, oh, sorry, other than the gospel. He explains it clearly. He doesn't have to do anything else. The rest is this eunuch-initiated response. Right? He's sitting there reading Isaiah 53, which is all about Jesus. He asks two questions of Philip. He invites him up into the chariot. There's a baptism proposal, all initiated by the Ethiopian eunuch. In other words, clear evidence of the Spirit's work. It's like a slam dunk salvation. He just knows. Finally, Acts chapter 10, what we just read here with Peter. There's clear evidence, miraculous praising of God in different language on the part of those who've heard and accepted the good news. Now, there are other reasons, but reasons number one, we don't normally baptize people ASAP after their decision to trust Jesus. The people now tend to display more gradual, grown fruits of the Spirit over time. In other words, if there was just immediate, when someone believed, they started speaking in tongues. If it was a slam dunk, they're, they're reading Isaiah 53, and they just want to like, yeah, let's get back, let's do this, I'm ready. I'm ready, I've been waiting for this my whole life. If there was more people praising God in languages they don't know and upon trusting Jesus, then we should. But that just doesn't seem to happen in our day and age, and I don't know why doesn't happen as much. Maybe it should. Maybe I'm not praying enough for these situations. But what I generally see is people gradually trusting Jesus, or they trust Jesus, and then they start to change. But let me say this too. When such evidence pops up in full color, it is so clear that the Holy Spirit is at work in this, this sort of extra miraculous way, leaders should be open to taking them directly into the water. Okay? All of this leads us to also baptizing children. What would prevent a child from being baptized? We mentioned last week one of the conclusions we came to as elders about baptism is that we would baptize persons of any age, including children. So what would prevent them from being baptized? Like everyone else, if they don't grasp the gospel, even in simple language, or they don't show fruit in their their lives, it would be wise and good for them to withhold baptism. Because you don't want them to start believing something Based on baptism, they actually haven't really believed genuinely in their heart of hearts. So the elders and I believe that the potential of the baptism presents a wonderful opportunity to parents to get to know their children on a gospel level, even start mentoring and discipling their child. Again, it's kind of a great excuse to sit down with your child, go through a manual, and I actually had a chance 
uh, at a church I served at years ago, to co-author a, a manual of mentoring your child through the baptism process. And you get to go through with your child, right, their understanding about the gospel. You get to, to work together with your child, putting together a simple testimony. And finally, you get to, to talk through with your child. Where do you see evidence of God, the Holy Spirit, at work in your life? With some creative questions you can ask them. What a great opportunity to bond parent and child. And at the end, get together with a pastor and talk about it all. One of the few, if only, times I spoke up to prevent a person from getting baptized, guys, it kept me up all night. Like, I, I, I know I shouldn't have felt guilty about it, but I did. Uh, just because it was a, a younger man. It was a kid who was in middle school. His father was one of my really close friends. And he had worked through his son, with his son this, this material together, right, mentoring his child. And, and along the way, the, fa- the father took no shortcuts very wisely. He discerned through the material with his son, and he maturely approached me. He said right before I got together with both of them, look, I'm really not sure if he's ready. I just want you to know that, but I really think the experience of talking with you, talking with a pastor, would be good for him. So let, let's, let's do it. So we did. So between telling me he'd always been a Christian, that was kind of part of his testimony. He said, yeah, I've always been a Christian. We know from Scripture it's just not possible. You're not born a Christian. You have to be born again. And he was using kind of, I noticed he was kind of using some Sunday school words to mask his understanding of the gospel. He said, well, yeah, I I invited Jesus into my heart like ten times. It was just starting to become clear, like he didn't yet grasp the gospel. So I just asked him, hey, man, um, might there be any other reason? You want to get baptized? And it turns out there was. And he explained that, honestly, I kind of want to get baptized because my best friend's getting baptized. And that was so good. I mean, and today he's a well-adjusted kid, great kid. In fact, I heard from him just over the past couple weeks. And you know what, guys? He still hasn't gotten baptized. He still hasn't gotten baptized because he hasn't trusted Christ. And when I lost some sleep over it at the time, he himself said, man, that was the right decision. I was doing it for the wrong reasons. It's good to have this conversation, guys. This is the whole point. Some of you might be nervous to approach a pastor elder and say, hey, I want to get baptized, but I want to meet. See if there's anything that might prevent me from it. But doing so really spotlights Jesus and his work in your life, right? It just gets you talking again about the gospel and about Jesus, about what he's done for you. And that only puts the spotlight back on him. That's the key, again, that's the theme we're working with here. Baptism spotlights what Jesus has done in and for you. Thirdly, baptism presents a compelling time for rejoicing. Baptism was the cause for the eunuch's rejoicing, we see in verse 39. God's people have always celebrated his strong deliverance of them from peril or abundant provision for them with times of rejoicing. In fact, I sat down this week with a Jewish friend of mine to ask about celebrating any or all of the seven Old Testament feasts of Israel. So I sat down with him because I love to get the hard-hitting facts for you guys. And every Jew, she said, celebrates two or three of these festivals still. Passover, God's deliverance from slavery, Rosh Hashanah, which many think is a substitute for the Old Testament feast of trumpets, and which leads to the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, God's delivery from sin. Each of them are filled with food, wine, song, joyous praise to God. And my friend 
fondly recalled as a kid during Passover, one of these kind of moments of joy, the tradition of an elder who would read from the Torah and then would hide the manna, the unleavened bread. And you know, the kids would have to find it. And if they found the, the manna, they would each get a special prize. And my friend boasted that she had won it six or seven times, that special prize, and found the manna, which was awesome. I was like, yeah, it's so cool, wonderful. What did you get? <laughs> I'll stop there. We, we are commanded by Jesus. Sorry, we are not commanded by Jesus. We're not possible to continue to celebrate those festivals. But it wouldn't hurt. It would certainly deepen our appreciation for what God has done in history. But those who trust Jesus have full access to the Father now. So we can celebrate and feast on him at any time through worship. Colossians 2, 16 and 17 tells us this. That all these feasts were a shadow of the reality to come, Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, Jesus left for us two ways to visibly celebrate him, to rejoice in him today. The Lord's Supper, which we're going to celebrate later, and baptism. In the Lord's Supper, we commemorate Jesus' substitutionary death on our behalf. In baptism, we celebrate the new life gained through his death. And it's awesome. Baptism, then, is like the, it's like the birthday celebration of the Christian life. Except you only do it once. So it's like the, the, it's like the beauty of marriage, the marriage ceremony with the fun of a birthday celebration, all rolled into one. Like a birthday party growing up, you should, if you get baptized, you should make requests, right? Just like you ask for Transformers to be a theme in your party, you know, or for a clown to show up, who probably scared most of the kids, right? Like, ah, horror movie clown, right? Those sorts of things. You get to make requests when you have a birthday. You should make requests when you have a baptism. It's a party. Requests like what, we, what you want to have sung, a scripture you want to have read, or just something you want to say when you're in the waters of baptism. You're celebrating your birthday. It's also a time when family gathers to rejoice this person's new birth. Every brother and sister is called in from their rooms. Hey, guys, come down. We're about to have the celebration. Every brother and sister. In fact, I asked uh, a few people who were baptized back in June, a few of those folks, to share how important it was to have the whole church present. It was the first time we tried something like a combined service. And so what was that like? Each person spoke how meaningful it was to rejoice with people they didn't know before. In fact, one gentleman said, that celebration made me feel united to my brothers and sisters in Christ like nothing else ever has in the church. It made me finally feel like part of God's family. Because so many people I didn't even know showed up. How awesome is that? That you participate in that. You may not have even known them. Let me challenge each of us who've already trusted Jesus and been baptized. Could you imagine being in the same town at the same time in the same place as your physical brother and sister and skip their birthday party? Like they're here. They're just down the road. Maybe they're not from here. They're staying at the Westin. They're staying at your house. Or maybe they're from here. On their birthday. Celebration. Stay home. Some of you guys will feel less close to those who are baptized. And you may not know them at all, but the Bible is clear. You, if you've trusted Jesus, are their brother and sister. What will you adhere to? Social conventions and say, ah, no big deal. How you feel that day. Or what the Word of God says about your relationship with them. 
Circle your calendar. Enter into your smartphone. November 9th, 10 a.m. to 11.30. Be there to rejoice a new birth, a compelling picture of what the gospel has done in your brother and sister's life with them. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful for those of us who have trusted in this good news. How can we, Lord, put a spotlight on what you've done in our lives? And you're very clear in your word. The first, most immediate response is baptism. So I pray for those who have trusted you, haven't yet visually demonstrated what you've done inwardly in them and for them that they might step forward, that you might encourage them to get baptized. Not because I'm telling them, but because you're compelling them. Father, I pray for, for all who might be intimidated to talk with the pastor about it, to recognize this is just another opportunity to get together with a leader of the church, get to know them, and talk more about what Jesus has done in my life. Talk more about the gospel, and, and just put the spotlight on Jesus even more. And for those of us, Lord, who might be tempted you know, been there, done that. Gone to a baptism. I don't know who's getting baptized. Let's just, let's do the brunch thing. Let's call home back to the different time zone. Let's, let's plan something else on that day. Encourage us, Lord. This is our brother or sister. Let's be there as we celebrate their birthday. We ask this all in Jesus' name, who has done such a work in our life. Amen.